the end result of this conference is, of course, the law, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This rather thick book I have here on my table with me. Uh, this is a very long treaty text. There are not many treaties in the history of treaty making that are as long. It contains 17 parties that cover more than 300 articles, some of which may be even one page long, this book, others are shorter. And on top of the 300 and so articles, we have nine annexes dealing with various matters, which are an integral part of the convention. So for legally, we have about 400 articles of treaty. What is the structure of the convention? If you take this book and look at the page of contents, you'll see that the convention, apart from the annexes, the convention proper is divided into 17 parts of unequal length, but still 17 parts. These parts show the, an important feature of the convention. The approach taken is basically what we could call a zonal approach. Namely, the law of the sea is examined maritime zone by maritime zone. What is a maritime zone? Maritime zone, even though there is no definition of such a theoretical level in the convention, a maritime zone is a part of the sea for which you have to answer two questions. First, what are its limits? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Towards the high seas and with neighbors. And the second question, what is the regime applicable within it? Namely, what rights and what obligations of different categories of states prevail into it? If we take for instance, the first maritime zone uh, mentioned in the Law of the Sea Convention in its part two, part one is just an article about the use of terms, the territorial sea. The part two specifies that the territorial sea is an area of the sea that lies between the baselines and a limit not exceeding 12 miles. So there is an idea of where it begins, the baseline, and where it ends, a 12-mile line. In further provisions, it explains that when there is a problem with neighbors, who can be lateral or in front, uh, a delimitation line, a borderline, must be drawn. So you will have also another other uh, determinations about where it ends. And then it also says that in this area, the territorial sea, 
the coastal states has sovereignty. So the regime is defin defined as sovereignty. Sovereignty, however, subject to the convention. What does it mean? That this regime of sovereignty is not identical to sovereignty as we conceive it on the land territory. There is one main exception to the total control of the coastal state, and this is the right of innocent passage of foreign vessels. So, for each maritime zone, we have a definition of where it begins, where it ends, and what states can and cannot do in it. What are the maritime zones that the Convention considers? Some of them have, let's say, a part in the conventions. Other, you have to look them into more detailed articles. We have the territorial sea. Then we have the contiguous zone, which is a police-controlled zone, which can extend for 12 more miles beyond the 12 miles of the territorial sea. In the past, this zone existed, but it could not extend beyond 12 miles. Now it can extend up to 24 miles. Then we have some provisions that are linked to the territorial sea, but not only to it, there is concern straight. After the territorial sea, we have a new creation of the Law of the Sea Convention, a new zone called the archipelagic waters or sea. Certain states that are composed only of islands, and whose islands have a certain relationship one to another, namely that they are not too far away one from another, that not too much water remains included, but in a very generous way. The big examples being Indonesia and the Philippines, but there are many more scattered through the globe. Well, these states claimed and obtained success for their claim that they would be entitled to draw a line around joining the outermost islands of the archipelago that constitutes these countries. And that the waters included in this, which would be called the archipelagic baselines, would enjoy a very special status, which, uh, to simplify, is similar to that of territorial waters, but in certain aspects is also similar to that of internal waters, namely even more under the sovereignty of the state than the territorial waters. Still, the right of innocent passage is admitted through these waters. But the important thing is that outside the baselines, the archipelagic baselines, archipelagic states are entitled to have all the other zones that a, a normal state has beyond the, its own baselines, namely a real territorial sea of 12 miles and the other zones I will immediately mention. The most important of the zones in which the coastal states enjoys some 
exclusive rights, we'll come back to this, uh, according to the convention, is the 200 miles exclusive economic zone. This area starts from the outer limit of the territorial sea and extends for further 188 miles up to the 200 mile limit. This is the key concept, the key new concept of the whole Law of the Sea Conference. This is where the minority of states that claimed 200 miles in the desert in the 50s got their biggest victory. Of course, in the 50s, Peru and Chile and Ecuador thought of a kind of territorial sea of 200 miles. The end result was a compromise, namely in the exclusive economic zone, all states enjoy sovereign rights for the purpose of exploring and exploiting natural resources, namely not only fish, but also oil and gas. The exclusive economic zone includes also the seabed, not only the water column. However, in the exclusive economic zone, the freedoms of the high seas, well, we'll come back to that, freedoms of navigation, of overflight, of laying cables and pipelines, plus other freedoms connected with these, are recognized to all states. There was a big discussion as to whether the exclusive economic zone would be a kind of territorial sea in which certain rights are recognized to other states or a portion of the high seas in which certain rights were recognized to the coastal state. This is the kind of discussion of principle, kind of philosophical discussions on which states can disagree forever and they can never concede victory to the other side in a conference. And this indeed is what happened in the Law of the Sea uh, conference. From what you read in the conference, the exclusive economic zone or EEZ is a sui generis. This is a Latin zone. It's a Latin expression that means of its own kind. Namely, it's not territorial sea, it's not high seas. And the basic way of implementing uh, this kind of sui generis zone is to spell out what rights, what activities are under the exclusive rights of the coastal state and what activities are free for other states. This is what the convention attempts to do in listing the rights and the freedoms. But still the, the delegates were perfectly aware that some activities may not perhaps be included in either list, perhaps because these were new activities that will would have developed in the future. And so the big fight was what would be the default rule? What about the activities not given to the sovereignty or sovereign rights of the coastal state and not attributed to the 
freedom of all other states. And this, of course, was the political question on which nobody was disposed to concede. And at the end, to the ingenuity of the main delegates from Mexico, Ambassador Castaneda and Norway, Ambassador Findenes, a way out of this dilemma was found with Article 59 of the Convention, which transforms the dilemma from a problem of substance into a problem of procedure. It says basically that when there is a conflict between a use, uh, between states, as far as the use of the EZ that is not attributed to the coastal state or to the freedom of all other states, the conflict should be resolved on the basis of equity and in the light of all the relevant circumstances, taking into account the respective importance of the interests involved to the parties as well as to the international community as a whole. So the problem was restricted to a situation of conflict, so if nothing dramatic happens, there was no need for a rule. And then is a conflict that should be resolved. It doesn't say by whom. It doesn't say that the judge would resolve it, even though perhaps it could be submitted to a judge, or that has been to be resolved peacefully by negotiations of the parties. But what is interesting is that the principle should be equity, should be the interests of the parties, the respective importance of the interest of the parties. So there may be that for one party the interest involved is relatively minor, for another is vital. And so this would be an important way for allotting in a specific case the jurisdiction on one side or another. But not only the interests of the parties are to be taken into account. Perhaps there is also to be taken into account a general interest. Let's make perhaps an example. One of the possible activities of this kind, not attributed either to the coastal state or to everybody else, would be the removal of archaeological objects beyond the limit of 24 miles, because within 24 miles there is a special rule. Well, here the coastal state can have certain claims and other states can also have certain claims invoking the freedom of the high seas. Let's imagine that a certain artifact, let's say an ancient statue buried in, on the seabed since century, is recovered. But who will keep it? The discoverer? the coastal st state because it's near to it, the state of the cultural origin of the statue. This has to be assessed on the basis of the relative the equity and so on. But certainly there is also general interest to be considered, namely that of the international community, which probably wants to study the statue, wants to see it in a museum and things like that. So the only solution that would be contrary to the interest of the international community in the money, in the, as a whole, would be to cut the statue in two, which would 
amount to the drawing. Maybe if there are two statutes, you could discuss whether to send one to one state, one to another, even though it would be wrong too, perhaps, culturally speaking, to separate them. So this is the solution to the big problem of the residuary or default rule in the exclusive economic zone, which was one of the key issues because culturally and historically the idea of the 200 miles came as a kind of development or expansion of the, of the territorial sea idea, but still the, the whole conference showed that the importance of the freedoms of the high seas, even in the 200 miles, was not to be dismissed. And the compromise was not only Article 59, but especially the articles allotting rights and obligations to the coastal state on one side, to all other states on the other. Uh, there was still a pending problem in the area uh, of the, at least 200 miles from the coast, namely the continental shelf. The Law of the Sea Conference of Geneva in 58 had adopted the concept of the continental shelf, namely the coastal state would have sovereign rights on the seabed adjacent to its coast up to a limit of the depth of 200 meters of water or even beyond that if exploitation was possible. It was a very vague and imprecise limit. Still there was the concept that sovereign rights on the seabed adjacent to the territorial sea. And what about this concept now that the, the 200, in the 200 mile space, there were sovereign rights on an economic zone that included not only the waters, but also the seabed, namely the, the, the continental shelf. Well, the first instinctive answer that came to the mind of many delegates was we don't need the continental shelf anymore. We have the economic zone, it includes the shelf, the former shelf, and the water column above it. However, this was not what was decided by the conference. The conference, if you look at the conference, decided that it would be an economic zone and also a continental shelf. Part six of the convention that comes after part five on the economic zone is indeed entitled to the continental shelf. And why was it needed to have a separate concept? Well, the basic idea is the following. The new, the new concept of the economic zone is a zone that states can claim through an express proclamation. States don't, are not born with an economic zone. States need, they are born with a territorial sea, even though it's better than they explain whether it is of 12, 6 or 3 miles. Uh, but if they want to have to enjoy the sovereign rights on the 200 miles economic zone, they have to proclaim it. However, as far as the seabed 
they are born with the seabed of the continental shelf. The continental shelf, as it is expressly said in uh, the convention, in Article 77, the rights of the coastal state over the continental shelf do not depend on the occupation, effective or notional, or on any express proclamation. So, if a state, for whatever reason, some are in this situation even now, decides not to proclaim an exclusive economic zone, or to wait until it proclaims an exclusive economic zone, it is still entitled to its continental shelf. So there is good reason to have rules on the continental shelf. Apart from this, in the Law of the Sea conference, it emerged that for certain states, their claim to a continental shelf extended beyond 200 miles. So there could be a continental shelves going even beyond the cover of the economic zone. And for this further reason, there was good reason to keep the two, the two concepts and not to limit uh, the convention to mentioning the economic zone. The continental shelf, as defined by the Law of the Sea Convention, is the same as in the Geneva Convention as far as its regime. It's an area of the seabed where the coastal states enjoys sovereign rights for the exploration and exploitation of resources, natural resources. But about limits is very different. Uh, first of all, the definition of the external limits of Geneva, the 200 miles isobar, the exploitability test is gone. Now, in Article 76, we have two rules. One very simple, one extremely complicated. The very simple rule is every state has a right to a continental shelf up to 200 miles, namely the bed of the economic zone, independently of what really exists under the sea, independently of whether the water is shallow or very deep, independently of whether there is or there is not a continental shelf in the geological sense of the world. If there is no natural continental shelf, well, there is a juridical continental shelf up to 200 miles. This is the simple rule. So states like Chile or Peru, who have a very narrow natural continental shelf, still can claim a continental shelf up to 200 miles into the Pacific. The complicated rule is what happens if states claim a continental that their natural continental shelf goes beyond 200 miles. This is Article 76 of the Convention, which is one of these one and a half pages article. In brief, it explains that if certain scientific, uh, well, in certain uh, conditions to be verified on the basis of scientific assessment 
are satisfied, a state can have a continental shelf going beyond 200 miles. Uh, the verification, however, this expansion can go on, cannot go on to an unlimited distance. And there are two maximum distances set out, 350 miles from the baseline or 100 miles from the 2,500 meters isobar. All this has, however, cannot be, must be proclaimed by the coastal state, but it cannot be opposed to other states, as paragraph eight of Article 76 says. All this, these limits established by the coastal state cannot be final and binding, namely binding for all other states, unless they are in conformity with a report to be made by a new body, the Commission for the Limits of the Continental Shelf, whose task is on the one hand to help states to do the science necessary to gather a substantial dossier of evidence for claiming a, territory, a, a continental shelf beyond 200 miles, and on the other hand, to indicated, indicating whether the proposed delineation of the outer limit of the continental shelf beyond 200 miles corresponds to the requirements of the convention. The, this commission is composed of 21 members who are not lawyers, they are geologists, geophysicists, and scientists in general. They have started very slowly their work. Now they are overwhelmed with applications and if the, they continue working at the present rhythm, it is calculated that they have to work until about 2030 or 40. So it's a huge work, is the new frontier of the law of the sea. It, when the Law of the Sea Convention was negotiated, everybody thought that the states with an interest to expanding their continent, an interest and the geophysical possibilities to expand their continental shelves beyond 200 miles would be about 20. Now we have on the table of the Commission between applications and indications of a possible future application, more than 90 uh, states that are interested. So more than half of the coastal state, in one way or another, have found a way to claim uh, such an expansion. This is an unforeseen precedent, uh, development, and it also shows that there was reason not to forget about the continental shelf among the uh, zones that were defined in detail by the Convention. This would basically exhaust the list of zones adopted by the Convention in which the coastal state exercises some rights that are different from those of the other states, has sovereign rights 
jurisdiction, there is always an opposition of position between the coastal state and the others. To this, these we may, however, add some that I mentioned a little bit more indirectly. In particular, it is said that the coastal state uh, can authorize the removal of archaeological and historic objects from an area whose breadth is the same as the contiguous zone, namely up to 24 miles. People have spoken of an archaeological zone, maybe uh, with some foundations, not mentioned as such in the convention. Then there is mention of enclosed and semi-enclosed seas. These are seas that are linked to the big oceans through a narrow outlet. You could mention the Mediterranean, probably also the Caribbean, and others. Uh, and here there are no hard and fast rules, but an indication that there is a need of cooperation between states in many fields, especially science, environmental protection, not the limitation, even though at the beginning there was some uh, talk about this. And then there are, in fact, not in the convention, other zones uh, that are not mentioned in the convention. For instance, fishery zones. Zones sometimes up to 200 miles when the coastal state claims exclusive rights on fisheries. Or environmental protection zone, science protection zone defense zones. How do we judge these unmentioned zones um, as far as their compatibility with the convention and with general international law is concerned? Probably the answer is that if the rights and duties claimed in this special zone, like a fishery zone, are included in rights and duties also included in some zone that is recognized. For instance, the rights of a fishery zone corresponds to part of the rights a state can claim under the economic zone. Well, then these are partial economic zones, these are partial zones. There is nothing wrong by claiming less than all one could claim. But if what is claimed goes beyond, it's different, from what is possible under an existing zone. For instance, to claim the right to preclude navigation for defense reasons within 200 or even only 50 miles, this would be against the convention, would be a violation of the convention. This zone would be incompatible with the convention. And there are a few zones of this kind in the world. Other zones that are mentioned by the convention see states on par, on a position in which there is no preferred state. There is no coastal state that has a special position. And this one is the oldest zone, the high seas. The high seas is still the zone where the main rule is freedom. All states have the right to exercise whatever activity they wish to exercise, the only limit being that they have to take, to give due regard to the exercise of the same freedoms by other states. You can, I don't know, navigate freely on the sea. 
but you can also lay cable freely on the sea. And if the two activities have, might be in collision, there must be ways to conduct both without too much inconvenience for the other. Still, the high seas of today is not the high seas of uh, the time of the Geneva Convention, not to say of 300 years ago. Uh, we could say there is a smaller high seas, in part, because, of course, the exclusive economic zone is not high seas. So the high sea become at the, beyond the limit of 200 miles. But so for standard purposes, even the exclusive economic zone remains high seas because we have seen f certain freedoms of the high seas, not all of them, are recognized to all states also within the economic zone. These are in particular, uh, not in particular, these are freedom of navigation, freedom of overflight, freedom of laying cables and pipelines, and connected freedoms. However, freedom of fishing prevails on the high seas, but doesn't apply to the exclusive economic zone. Freedom of scientific research, the same, applies in the high seas, but not in the economic zone. And not only has the high seas become smaller, because its contours have moved 200 miles inwards, but also the bed of a high seas has changed nature. 